showtime! Bring it in, it's showtime, right? It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Show. As always, thank you so much for listening. It's always a pleasure to chat about movies with you guys. And, you know, we're getting into the uh, last week of November here. It's going to be December very, very, very soon, which is kind of crazy, isn't it? Isn't it wild that we're in... I mean, I know I, I just said we're in November, but isn't it crazy that we're, we're basically into the last month of the year? Isn't that just a wild thing that has happened it, it it hits me every year around now where i think to myself man you know like what have what have i been doing all year like i remember tiff as if it was yesterday and then before that i remember the oscars as if they were yesterday and the super bowl before that and you know christmas from last year and then you kind of keep going backwards and backwards and backwards it's just the, all these events seem like they take place a weeks apart, and yet we are here at the end of 2019. We're actually, uh, I mean, not that I'm, it's a, it's a particularly new revelation, but we're actually at the end of the decade now. Pretty crazy, huh? I mean, I know 2019, it, it's, it's hard to kind of, fin- you know, it's hard to, for people to say that 0 to 9 is 10, you know what I mean? Because everyone always ends on 10 when you count from 1 to 10, but still, you know, we're coming on, up onto the end of the decade, beginning of the 2020s. The Roaring Twenties, is that what we're going to call it? Maybe, maybe there'll be a new name. Recently I learned, not recently, but recently I used in conversation the term aughts. A-U-G-H-T-S. The aughts to describe the 2000s, basically. I've always said 2000s, but interested to know what you guys think. Is aughts something you actually refer to? I don't think so. I mean, I know it's a, it's def, a quote-unquote official term, but still, who actually says aughts? Sounds kind of pretentious, even though I said it on the radio the other day, but still. 2020 is coming up next, and, you know, there's some interesting lists going about. There's some lists on top 10 albums, top 10 individual songs, top 10 books, of course, top 10 TV shows, and obviously, more interesting to you and I, (laughs) top 10 movies. Top 10 movies, and I think that's something we'll tackle a little closer to the end of the year itself. We probably got a couple more episodes in us until we, you know, actually get to the end of the year. And of course, we're, we're like the last episode of the year before that episode will probably be the Star Wars episode, right? So hopefully we'll get a guest. I'm, I'm hoping to get a bit of a round table on that episode, you know, maybe get some people to drop by, maybe kind of like a fireside chat kind of thing. And we got we, the whole episode is just a couple of people, including myself, talking about Star Wars and the, and the saga to this point in time. So we'll get some people in here for the Star Wars thing. And that kind of is a good segue to the next thing I want to talk about really briefly. We're not going to spend too long on it. It's not going to be like, you know, an official segment of the show or anything like that. But I did want to spend a couple minutes talking about Disney Plus's new flagship show, The Mandalorian. And you guys know I love Star Wars. And like I just mentioned, we're going to go heavy on the Star Wars to end the year, as I as I always love to do. But and, and look, I don't, I don't want to want to talk about The Mandalorian, uh, you know, like when it comes to the actual show, right? Spoiler alert, it's really good. Three episodes have aired so far. It airs on Fridays. But what I really want to talk about is the way the show is consumed by people, right? We talk so much about, because we talk so much about how movies are consumed by people, right? We talk so much about how the streaming services, Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, if you're in the United States, of course, here in Canada, Crave, which I do enjoy using. It's a very good service, and it's just very intuitive, much like Netflix is. It's, they're, all, they're all pretty intuitive, to be fair. 
and now Disney Plus, of course, right? Which is where you watch The Mandalorian. And I find it interesting because here's the thing, right? When it comes to streaming TV shows, the, the way the, the distribution model has evolved is an interesting one because let's use Game of Thrones as an example, right? Game of Thrones, wildly, vastly popular. And yet, because Game of Thrones was airing on a television channel, right? I mean, HBO is something you have to pay for, of course, separately to get on your TV. Like, if you're a customer of Rogers or Bell here in Canada, you have to pay separately to get HBO as part of your cable package. But because because it is, at the end of the day, a television program... You have to watch it week by week, and no one really complains about it, right? Even if the, even though the shows are f- taped ahead of time, they're filmed ahead of time, like movies and stuff, and for Game of Thrones, I mean, they're like 60-plus minutes of television, so they're like little movies, basically. And, and with the, the production value that went into Game of Thrones, for example, it kind of was like watching a fantasy movie every week on Sunday, right? Now, with Disney+, Plus, Disney+, Plus is just an app. It is just a service, an online service, that you only use... You know, whether it's on your phone, your computer, you download it as an app onto your television, your smart TV, of course, your gaming console. I use it on my Xbox, for example, your Apple TV, like whatever device you have, right? Like your microwave at this point, who knows, right? But in all seriousness, you 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 use Disney Plus, not like TV, even though it, it is showing you TV and movies, right? And I find it really interesting because there's this argument going around online now as to whether or not binge culture has ruined the way we should consume or do consume television because people expect and people are kind of clamoring online. It's like, why do I have to wait every week to watch The Mandalorian? I should be able to binge it all in one go. And initially I was like, oh, well, Game of Thrones does that. But then, yeah, Game of Thrones is a TV show that airs on TV. There is no Disney Plus channel that you can turn to at, you know, midnight on a Friday. Right. And that's the thing. The episodes drop at like, you know, I think it's something like 3 a.m. Eastern, which I think is closer to which which is midnight Pacific. Right. So everywhere it gets gets it dropped at once. Of course, Disney Plus, as any new service does, has some had some issues at launch. So, you know, they're still ironing that out. But look, the show is great and all. But I wonder I just wonder what the argument is in favor of. Of binging. I saw some people say that, oh, well, I should be able to watch all, all 12 episodes or whatever it is. I should be able to watch all 12 episodes at once because now that I have to wait, you know, I haven't had the time week by week, so I'm behind in a couple episodes. But if I had the all episodes at once, I could have binged it all on that one weekend and I could have been caught up. I don't know. I, the reason I, I bring it up, because, of course, this is a movie podcast, not a television podcast, but the reason I bring it up is because we have all heard the myriad arguments for how the streaming services, the streaming models have changed how we consumers, I guess, maybe I shouldn't have used the word consumers, but how we all consume movies. You know, like there's the argument about how Netflix movies have to now purchase space in theaters for, for a limited run of like a month or something like that, maybe even less in some cases, in order to be eligible for Oscars and other awards, because of course, to be to be at least right now, the uh, the criteria that must be met for movies to be eligible for Oscars is that they play commercially for people to see. And I mean, why would someone, for example, go to the movie theater to watch The Irishman and pay fourteen dollars when they're already paying 
you know what, $15.99 a month for Netflix, and they can watch it at the comfort of their own home. They can pause the movie if they want to. They can take bathroom breaks without missing anything. You know, there's popcorn that you can make their own popcorn. You don't have to spend upwards of $50 for a night out for two people. You don't have to book the sitter, right? Like Netflix and Disney Plus and all of these other films, uh, I should say streaming services, make watching films easier, right? And now we get into the argument of whether or not people's comments about movies should be played in theaters, are gatekeeping, and, and so on and so forth. I'm not really interested in getting into that because, you know what, people and filmmakers, you're all entitled to th- think what you think, and Netflix is entitled to do what they want to do. I do think that over time, the rules and regulations will be changed because Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and all the other services, Disney+, Plus, they're all the way of the future, and, and, and more and more films... Critically acclaimed films will be released on those services because, you know, Netflix can afford to give Martin Scorsese $150 million extra dollars because he wants to utilize a de-aging process, whereas, like, a Paramount or some other studio will balk at that because they, you know, well, I mean, they don't want to spend an extra $150 million, but, like, it's different because Netflix gets paid arguably forever by you for The Irishman, right? I mean, how how many people do you think are signing up for right now Netflix because The Irishman comes out next week on Netflix and they don't have it, right? I mean, arguably most people, I would say, who, you know, use Netflix or have a login to Netflix, let's say. But I bet Netflix is going to be getting some... Some, some new dough, some income that they had not yet gotten because, because people want to be able to watch Martin Scorsese's latest epic, right? And I, I, I wanted to bring up the, the television equivalent, not that I'm saying The Mandalorian is the first show to do this, but I just find it interesting that by making their show release weekly, people are now up in arms about it, which is crazy to me because that is how TV is consumed, it's funny because, I mean, I'm a millennial, but, I mean, I can just see it now, like, boomers saying, oh, have millennials ruined the way we watch TV, question <laughs> mark? You know, all those kind of lazy think piece articles. Have millennials ruined the idea of going out? Have millennials ruined people's jobs? Have millennials ruined the whole world? Like, no, come on, let's be real here, right? People love to blame things on millennials. Also, that's not necessarily new to, you know, whatever generation. Like, every generation thinks that about the, the next generation, right? So, I mean, I'm not going to lay that on the boomers. Everyone does that, and you can go and find articles that blame, like, the hippies in the 60s. Have hippies ruined the, You know what I mean? Like, it's not exactly a new idea, but hey, there you go, right? I just, I just find it really interesting. That's something to consider because we're getting into award season now, and, I mean, we're going to do The Irishman on this very podcast. We're going to do Ford v. Ferrari and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood as well, but The Irishman... It's so fascinating to me because Martin Scorsese, and of course he had those recent comments about Marvel movies. He doesn't think Marvel movies are cinema. That's a topic for another podcast because like, man, like whether, I, I don't know if I believe in any one person being able to say, I, this is cinema and this is not cinema. But at the same time, Martin Scorsese is also entitled to say whatever the hell he wants. I do not think what he said is gatekeeping. Don't get me wrong at all. You can feel free to disagree with him. You can agree with him. I'm somewhere in the middle, probably, right? Because I like Marvel movies and I find them entertaining, but at the same time, they're kind of like they're, I like to call them popcorn movies, right? Because you, you eat your bag of popcorn, you go home, and you don't really think about it again, right? Like I wasn't really thinking about any of the Marvel movies more than a couple hours afterwards, and then I kind of forgot about it and went on with my day. You might be different, but I, I personally fall in, in, in line with that. 
But at the same time, you know, who is one person to say what is and is not cinema, no matter who you are, right? Anyways, that's a that's a that's a more in-depth discussion, I think, that is best suited to having a guest where we can toss around some ideas. But I don't know. The Irishman, when it comes to streaming services, is fascinating to me because it's going to be a heavy awards favorite. And it did play in theaters. I saw the movie last week when it played here, the TIFF Lightbox, because that was the easiest way to go see it. It was three and a half hours. And it's interesting because people often talk about the idea of being able to watch a movie the way the filmmaker intended, and that is the way you should watch it, right? Because remember there was that whole controversy from a couple of weeks ago where Netflix says uh, they were trying to add a feature where you could watch it like at at one and a half speed. And people watch podcast or listen to podcasts rather on a, on one and a half speeds or two times the speed. And maybe it sounds like talking like this, and you're talking really fast, and you know you, maybe you don't always catch what everyone's saying, but you get to finish the podcast in you know what half the time I guess if you're watching if you're listening at it twi- twice the speed. Should I talk about that? By the way. Going forward, I don't know. Maybe not, but <laughs> I, I I just think that I found the backlash against adding that feature very fascinating because is the, did the filmmaker intend for you to be able to take a bathroom break in the middle of a movie? Probably not, right? Like the filmmaker intended you for for you to sit your butt in that seat or on your couch and watch that movie from beginning to end without stopping it. And I would say you have always been able to do that with VHS tapes and, you know, now Netflix allows you to pause it in the middle. Like, is that how the filmmaker intended you to watch it? I would say no, but that's what they got an up in arms about. I don't know. It's a slippery slope, I understand. So it's like, well, if you add all these features, where do you stop? I get that. I get that. I do. But I do also kind of, it's kind of like, this is, this is the era we live in, you know? Make a movie and allow people to watch it at the speed they want and in the fashion they want or don't make movies, frankly. I mean, like, it's a, no one can tell me how to interpret a piece of art that's hanging on a wall or how to, you know, interpret certain lines in a book. I think the author's intent matters to a point, certainly. But, I mean, it's also, you know, dependent on the consumer to, to an extent as well. Anyways, I've, gone, I've waxed, uh, waxed poetical for enough time on this, in this issue. It's just, with all the Netflix streaming service stuff and you know, TV shows versus movies and how art is meant to be consumed. It's a very fascinating topic. And I, and I encourage you to think a little bit more on that. Maybe we'll get, a, like I said, we'll get a guest in here and we'll, we'll bang around the topics of Martin Scorsese and his thoughts on Marvel movies. But I think maybe that might be a topic for a little later on because I do want to get to some movie reviews. And you know what? Since we're talking about Martin Scorsese, let's get right to the bulk of the latest Scorsese movie, like I mentioned, The Irishman, fantastic film, has some really, a lot of deep meaning and a lot of deep themes, especially for a filmmaker with the varied history that Scorsese does himself. So without further ado, Scorsese's latest epic, the three and a half hour Irishman. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is, of course, a remix. Not the original, but the remix of the very famous Money Waters, his song Manish Boy, which I think is pretty appropriate for the Irishman, you know? Because, of course, what what are, like, the... What are the two things you, if you could just, if someone was like, what's the Irishman about? 
And if you didn't know what the plot was about, what are the two things you probably rhyme off to someone? The first is that it features, like I mentioned in that previous segment, you know, de-aging technology for Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and of course, Al Pacino, right? So that's probably one thing you know. And the second thing you know is that it's three and a half hours. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is a long movie. For sure, it is a long movie. But to its credit, I would say that The Irishman never, ever feels like it. You know, like it never actually feels like three and a half hours. I mentioned before, I went to go see this movie at the TIFF Lightbox here in Toronto because it's playing, it's been playing for a couple of weeks now, uh, of course, ahead of the Netflix release next week, right? It comes out, I think, on, I think it's next Friday. Today's Friday. I'm, I'm recording this on a Friday. And next Friday, the, 20, uh, the 29th, I believe, Irishman, the Irishman, I should say, hits Netflix everywhere, worldwide, right? So... It's a, it's a credit to Martin Scorsese's filmmaking, especially after, you guys remember the last movie he did, Silence? Adam Driver, Liam Neeson, Andrew Garfield. You guys remember that movie? And it's about these, I want to say it was about these uh, missionaries who go to Japan and, like I guess, get more than they bargained for if you really want to boil it down, right? But that movie, oh man, that, that movie felt like three hours. It felt long. Whereas The Irishman does not ever really feel long, and I think it's because how the movie was made, okay? In this review, I want to kind of hit on three things. I want to hit on how the movie was made, kind of it, its its thematic resonance and, and, you know, just general structure. We're going to talk about that first. Then we'll talk about the acting. How could you not with these legends, right? Uh, Pesci, De Niro, and, of course, Al Pacino, like I mentioned, right? And then I want to talk about the de-aging technology, okay? So we'll get to all three of those in due course. We're going to start in that first block there if we're really segmenting it, right? And and the really what I want to get to here is that it almost feels like it was filmed... It almost feels like if, if Netflix really wanted to, they could have made Martin Scorsese make this a three-part miniseries. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's really... It's because, look, if you, if you don't know what this movie is about... It is essentially about how, and, it, and look, it's adapted from the 2004 memoir, I Heard You Paint Houses, which tells the true, I'm using, I use air quotes with true because it's told by this guy, the true story of Frank Sheeran, who is Robert Nero's character, a real person. He's a World War II vet, former truck driver who, you know, in the 1950s, eventually meets up with Joe Pesci's character, Russell Buffalino, who is the, uh, kind of cool, but also scary boss of the Buffalino family, crime family. And Frank Sheeran eventually becomes, you know, a trusted mob soldier. He becomes a hitman eventually. And one of his assignments you learn is, and in real life, this did actually happen um, by Jimmy Hoffa. He was to work for Jimmy Hoffa, who was the president of the Teamsters Union uh, in the 50s and 60s and so on. And, you know, in real life, Jimmy Hoffa's Teamsters Union was very much involved in underworld mob connections. Sheeran worked for Hoffa. He was his right-hand man. And then in this memoir, according to Sheeran himself, he was the one given the order to to kill Hoffa. And he was the one who did that, even though in in reality, in real life, um, his Hoffa's sudden disappearance was never resolved. So I I believe, last I checked, uh, Jimmy Hoffa was actually ruled dead in absentia in real life, right? So because that, that's the story, okay? And... So because Martin Scorsese chose to focus the first third of this movie on Frank Sheeran's life as a truck driver coming back from the war and then meeting Russell Buffalino. 
The second part of the movie is about him earning the trust of the Buffalino family and kind of working his way up to become a hitman. And then the third part of the movie is his becoming Jimmy Hoffa's right-hand man and then eventually offing Jimmy Hoffa. Now, I don't feel like this is a spoiler because these are historical events. I think the film does lose some... It loses some oomph, I guess, in that middle part because a lot of the... Or middle part and a bit of the third part because I think... Martin Scorsese tried to intercut what was going on in this film with real life events, right? Like that, like the Kennedy Nixon stuff, Kennedy assassination, the Cuban missile crisis, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's fascinating from afar. But when they're really getting in there, there's no real aha moments to come out of that. Right. It's just kind of a, it's a bit of a dry history lesson, which I don't really care for personally. That it doesn't really take too much away from the movie. It's just, it makes me think that does it, did that movie really need to be three and a half hours? It could have been three hours, and I don't think anything really would have been lost because all three of their performances, Pesci, De Niro, Pacino, all were so, so, so good. Like 30 minutes less. Like you're not really complaining because you're getting 30 minutes more, I guess, if I want to phrase it the, the opposite way, right? But I don't think the movie would have really suffered that much if you had just gotten 30 minutes less of the history lessons because we all know what happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we all know what happened with President Kennedy, and we all know what happened with Nixon and Watergate and all that stuff, right? It's they're, they're so famously ingrained into the, not even just like the historical lexicon, but the pop culture, like, zeitgeist, right? So anyways, that's my only real complaint with this movie because honestly, it's pretty fantastic. <laughs> it's a pretty fantastic movie, and we'll get to the acting because that's where it starts, right? Certainly it starts with the the measured direction of Martin Scorsese. Don't get me wrong. That part is fantastic. And I think I think a lot of the Irishman has to do with how it's it's a stunning it's it's a stunningly amazing engrossing gangster movie just like Goodfellas was in such a different way, right? I mean, Good, Goodfellas was such a live wire, crackled with energy and, and you wanted to know what Henry Hill and all these other guys are going to do next and a lot of funny scenes and so on. Whereas The Irishman is very cold. It's very deliberate. It's slow. It's methodical, you know, and it's, it's, it's melancholy. It's almost like it's a movie about growing old and it's a movie about what, what it costs or what it means when you lose your humanity, right? That's a, that's a really fascinating question and I, I suppose, answer that Martin Scorsese puts out there via Frank Sheeran and Robert De Niro in this movie, right? It's, it's pretty fantastic. And yeah, Robert De Niro's performance, absolutely amazing. It's very understated. It's fascinating to see him be the center of all of the things that go on in the movie and yet not be the main part of the film, if that makes sense. You know, because it's about, you kind of think to yourself, how does a truck driver, a relatively unassuming truck driver, get into the becoming a hitman? And you learn part of it is because in, during World War II, he was, a uh, you know, he killed a lot of people and he commits some war crimes, maybe. Fascinating scene where he makes two German soldiers dig their own graves and then he shoots them to death and, like, just buries them in the grave. And, you know, apart from that being a commentary on, you know, American idealism in World War II, I think it's a fascinating look at how this man came back from the war, arguably a broken person. And I think Robert De Niro nails the performance because the guy is so cold, it's so calculating. And part of it, you think, is just naturally how Robert De Niro acts, especially now in his 
older age, but no, it was really good. He was fantastic. Joe Pesci was my personal favorite performance of the movie because it was very understated. Russell Buffalino in the Joe Pesci performance is so... Like, I mean, I kind of mentioned when I was describing the plot of the movie, he's kind of cool. He's a like, cool, you know? He's just very... Like, I, I just used the word cool twice. I meant it in the sense that he's cool, like, wow, that guy is so... You know, cool as in like fascinating and awesome. And then he's also cool, like cool head, cool under pressure, cold cool. You know what I mean? Like it's the two different versions of that word. And th- those two kind of resonate in throughout his whole performance, which I think is really, really, really good. It's fascinating to watch. I've used that word a lot. I know. I apologize. I'll try to cut down on the word fascinating from now on. Uh, but of course, I think the star of the movie, it's hard to argue against, even though it's not my personal favorite, but it's hard to argue against it is Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa. And the Jimmy Hoffa we see is fiery and angry sometimes. And he 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 got he has a lot a lot of the movie's best lines. And it's such an Al Pacino performance, but it's also something a little bit else. You know, it's like it's it's so energetic. It's so laced with the, all of this stuff that's going on coming out of Al Pacino's mouth. Like it's moving a mile a minute. And it's it's so fascinating. It's really fun to watch. Uh, and I think the three of them together, who, who thought we would have seen that again, right? Who really thought we would have seen that again? Not me, that's for sure. It's a very great movie. And of course, the de-aging technology bit. I mean, look, it's not perfect. <laughs> it's hard. It was a little distracting, if I'm being honest, at certain points, which is why I, I can't really give this movie complete perfect marks. I don't think a lot of people are saying it's one of the best movies of the decade. It's very, very, very good. Well, maybe it'll make that top movie of the decade list. I per- not personally, not for me. I don't think it's still really, 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 really good. But like this de-aging thing, it's kind of weird because it's 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 distracting because of how it makes them look. Maybe it's because in part you know they don't look like that. But I will say they they held back a little bit. It's it's almost like watching someone get digitally like given digitally plastic surgery. You know, like a nip and tuck, but digitally. You know, it's it's very interesting to watch. And, I, and I'm glad they did it the way they did because even when, for example, Robert De Niro's character, Frank Sheeran, is, is a younger man, they don't make him look like he's 19. They make him look like he's 35. And maybe that's more believable because they don't have to do too much work. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen what Joe Pesci looks like now, but he's old. Like, he looks old because he is old. But also, when they de-age him, they de-age him to, like, 50 Right. And I think that makes him look more realistic because he's not being de-aged to 20. Right. So they're still kind of like middle aged guys instead of old men. Right. Which I find interesting. That being the choice they made. Someone mentioned on Twitter. and I, I really do agree with this point, And that's why I wanted to bring it up here was that despite the fact that they are de-aged, they are still old men on the inside and it makes their characters Jimmy Hoffa, Frank Sheeran, Russell Buffalino seem like they are old men at heart. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like they've all had armored hearts because they have dealt with a lot of crap over their lives, being being mob bosses and being killer soldiers and being, you know, the president of unions and dealing with a lot of crap, right? They've all had to deal with stuff, and that's why they're, they're old souls. In real, reality, it's because it's, they're being played by three old men, but uh, I, I just find it lends an interesting dynamic to the film, which makes them all seem a little more mature from the word go, right? Anyways, it's a fascinating movie. Oh my god, I used the word fascinating again. I'm sorry. I, it's, no more no more fascinating. Crossing that word off the list. But no, it's it's a it's great. 
it's it's just so unique. It's a unique movie. And, you know, again, did it need to be three and a half hours? Probably not. I had to forego my usual large Coke in the movie theater while I was watching it because I would have had to go into the bathroom. I would have missed something important. I would have come back and there still would have been like an hour left of this film, right? So I was like, you know what? I can't risk it. I can't risk it. It's too long. Uh, but you know what? Again, to its credit, it does not feel like it. And you know what? If you haven't seen it yet, you'll be able to watch it in the comfort of your own home where you can pause it, like I mentioned in the first segment, and go to the bathroom anyway. So there you go. Everybody wins. Expect to see this movie in heavy contention at the Oscars, potential best picture, a lot of acting awards here, potentially best director, I'm sure will be a thing for Martin Scorsese, definitely nominee, right? So we will see how far it goes. But yeah, The Irishman is a movie you should definitely see uh, before the end of 2019. The next movie I wanted to talk about was Ford versus Ferrari, a racing movie starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale. And it was about, you know, I'm a sports fan, as you guys know, and it's about a sporting event that I didn't really know a lot about. You know, like it was interesting to watch this movie because I like to think that, you know, everyone likes to think when they know sports that they know everything there is to know about sports. But you know what? I'm not a huge racing fan, and that's what this movie is about. So it was, it was really fascinating to go into this movie relatively blind, and I was happy I did because I think it really adds to the viewing experience. So let's get right to the next review on the Showtime Movie Podcast, this one for James Mangold's Ford versus Ferrari. Do you think you can name? Honestly, like since 2013's Rush, you know, there haven't been that many movies, I guess, that deal with the finer points of the race car, I would say. I mean, there's that weird dog movie. It's like driving at night in the rain with my dog in the passenger seat. It's like a, a, it's something like the mo- name of the movie is a, is, a, is a phrase like that or something. But I don't know if I really count that as a racing movie. That's one of those sloppy dog movies. But, you know, apart from Rush and then I guess the Fast and the Furious films, but I mean, is you know, is Fast and the Furious really about racing cars anymore? I don't really think so. Anyways, not a lot of racing movies in Hollywood these days, I would say, right? It, Ford, Ford v. Ferrari, I guess I, I guess it technically is versus, but Ford v. Ferrari is what it says on the ticket. And uh, director James Mangold, as I mentioned, he previously directed, I mean, lots of stuff, certainly, but my, my two favorites of his, uh, 310 to Yuma, the remake, again, with Christian Bale, and uh, Logan, of course, the, the, the one everyone likes with... Um, Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart, you know, so Mangold has really created, I would say a pretty masterfully told story, not just about car racing, but perhaps about how the relationship between two men defined a generation of race car drivers, right? So here's the story. Okay. If you want to go into a blind, skip this part, skip the next like 30 seconds or so. I'm going to describe what happens, but the story is in 1966, Ford, the car manufacturer, sets their eyes on winning the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is the oldest active car race in the world. It still goes on today. A little less uh, hype around it because probably car racing is not quite as popular anymore, certainly. But in, in 1966, or in the 60s, I should say, specifically, Italian manufacturer Ferrari, which, of course, we all know as you know the, the, some of the most expensive cars in the world even today, Ferrari has constantly won the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and, and I mean, look, if you, if you don't get what, what it is, Le Mans is a place in French, Le Mans, I guess I should be pronouncing it. And it's, you basically have to come in first 
after a 24 hour continual of driving, right? And you can, you can shift out your drivers, but it's like, usually they go with like four drivers and you, you do it in shifts or two drivers and you do it in shifts or three drivers or whatever. Right. So, but regardless, Ferrari was the only manufacturer to uh, win consistently because you have to have a car that holds up. It's like one person driving the, or several people driving the same car. And because Ferrari's won over and over and over and over again, Ford has decided enough is enough. Okay. Here's the only problem. They've never made a race car. Whereas Ferrari, I mean, they still make race cars to this day, right? So they enlist the help of former Le Mans winner, Carol Shelby, who was played by Matt Damon, uh, who was at the time the, o- the only American to ever win. And he in turn enlists his friend and expert driver, Ken Miles, who was Christian Bale's character. And together the two guys put their talents to work for Ford in pursuit of winning Le Mans. Okay. I, I mean, the movie kind of rests on Matt Damon and Christian Bale, as you might imagine. And as usual, they are on point with their portrayals. You know, Shelby is a, is very stoic. He, he's very willing to go to war for, to fight for what he believes in, even maybe, maybe I'll be a little reluctantly. And miles on the other hand is, as he says in the movie, quote unquote, not a people person. Right. And he is, he's, you know, he's fiery. He has a short fuse. He often takes it out on other people, including Shelby. Right. And I would say Damon and Bale play off each other with such regularity and they really believably sell you on a pair of men who have been around each other like so often for so long. They say that anything they say or do with each other is old hat. You believe that they know each other and have known each other for a really, really long time, which is really cool. I mean, they're both expert veteran actors. They're both absolutely tremendous. It was really fun to watch them kind of banter back and forth. There's even a scene where they kind of get into it with each other uh, physically, I would say, and it's very fascinating. Oh, no, I did it again. Fascinating. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really great acting performance from the two of them. John Bernthal is also in it as well. But, I mean, I would say the movie, for the most part, is, is, on, is rests on their shoulders, right? Now, look... In a movie largely about car racing, it would be pretty dull, I would say, to have little to no shots of, you know, cars actually racing, right? And thankfully, James Mangold, he manages to include as much of it as possible. He includes a lot of scenes of Shelby and Miles test driving the Ford cars. You know, there are lots of wide shots that kind of swoop down behind the rear end of the race car, following through the stadium or down a dirt road, and the crowds kind of roar in the background, it's, it's, it's really impressive because there doesn't appear to be a lot of special effects when it comes to the actual car racing. I'm sure there's, there are, I'm sure there is a lot of it, but it doesn't look like there is, which is really impressive. And I would say similarly, the sound effects and the general sound design of this movie is just top notch. You know, every purr and growl of an engine can be heard. And for, for an audience that is not likely an expert in car engine manufacturing, like me, obviously, and you more likely, it's remarkably easy to hear the difference in like the Ford cars versus the Ferrari cars, which is really cool, right? And even even further, James Mangold and his crew on the film managed to give the sound design some character itself. I mean, you can hear the strain of an engine as the driver floors the pedal. You can hear the squeal of the brakes. It, it's just rare that the sound design bleeds through into the general quality and character of this film, or of any film, I should say. And, it, and it's it's... It happens with such regularity that it's almost like you go see another movie. You're like, like, oh man, like why isn't it happening here, right? Oh, it's it's really cool. It's it's really it's really really cool. And I would uh, like if there's a fall to be found, it's probably that the first act of this film is slow. You know, it takes a while to introduce both Shelby and Miles separately, and even before that, it takes a little bit to set up the impetus for Ford even wanting to go to Le Mans in the first place. That's not, and it's not to say the beginning of the movie is not entertaining. By the time we actually get to the point. 
everyone is building and racing these vehicles and movies and dare I say, full throttle, right? So there you go. Might take some time to rev up. Huh? Then it gets a full throttle, right? How many times can I use those puns in a, in a review? Probably not very often, I would say, right? <laughs> Anyways, look, 4B Ferrari is, is entertainment that regular people like myself and car enthusiasts all alike can appreciate. Damon and Bale, they're funny, they're meaningful, and the racing itself is interesting, even if you can Google this and find out how it ends, I would, although I would argue no, not a lot of people know what happened in 1966 at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. I think, you know what's interesting? I think at worst, it's a top three racing movie of all time, and I think it's easily one of the best films of the year. I, I, know, I, sh- I know I say a lot, we shouldn't compare these movies to each other, or we shouldn't only judge them based on whether or not they're going to win Oscars. We should not do that. But I, do, I will say, I, every, every year there's a movie that wins all of the quote-unquote technical awards, right? Like First Man did that to an extent. The Grand Budapest Hotel did that to an extent. I think this year it's going to be Ford B. Ferrari. It's going, to, it's going to take a lot of those technical awards, film editing, sound editing, maybe even visual effects, although with The Irishman and other movies out there, that might be, that may be a tighter race than it usually is. But yeah, I think this movie is going, to, is going to be big at the Oscars this year. Maybe even a Dark Horse Best Picture winner, I dare say, right? So... Keep an eye on this one, but I think that even if you're not a sports fan or you're not a car fan, I think the performances of Matt Damon and Christian Bale make it worth your time. The last movie on the docket today is going to be A Beautiful Day in Their Neighborhood, of course, starring Tom Hanks, and it's really all about Mr. Rogers. Now, I'll be completely uh, transparent and say I've never watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, okay? I've never watched it. I'm not familiar with Fred Rogers. It's never been a part of my life. So I went into this film kind of, again, blind in the sense that I didn't really know a lot about Mr. Rogers other than he is basically supposedly a saint, (laughs) right? So when I went to see this movie, I was shocked at how much I loved it. Honestly, it is, it is so cathartic. It's a cathartic watch. And I can't remember the last time I said that about really any movie. So let's get right into the review of the latest Tom Hanks flick, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers. In here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbor? I mentioned the catharsis that I personally experienced when I watched this movie, which is fascinating because, again, I have never seen Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? I've never seen that TV show. But I think a lot of people would agree with me who saw this because I saw this movie at TIFF, and it's not often that, you know, upon a film's completion, the whole audience kind of leans back in their chair and kind of just sighs, like kind of contentedly, you know? And that's exactly what happened after I saw this movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It was just, it was so unique because the audience had been so thoroughly satisfied, almost like they had been rested. They felt rested after watching it. And yeah, that's where the catharsis comes from. And it provides that for people like myself who don't really have a particularly or really any strong connection to the source material, which I think was really cool. From the narrative's perspective, I would say the movie is very simple and that's not a knock against it, right? It features two particularly fantastic performances. The direction is very, very creative and a little kind of surreal, actually. And it, and it evokes really strong emotions. But if you want to simplify it as much as possible, the plot really is about a, a cynical journa- journalist 
who meets Fred Rogers, someone he had dismissed long ago as a phony or, you know, someone who must have some skeletons in his closet and his life has changed as a result. And it sounds pretty easy, right? It sounds pretty easy to, to digest. And it's fortunate for us because director Muriel Heller makes it anything but easy, right? I mean, she essentially frames the entire narrative as an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And that, that program ran from 1968, I learned, to 2001. And again, I want to be clear, I've never once watched this mo- this program and the movie makes me feel, Heller's direction makes me feel like I have seen it, which is crazy to say, right? I mean, there are lots of shots, for example, that are filmed when Tom Hanks kind of enters the set of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It makes it it's filmed with an older older camera or at least made to look as such, giving it the, the quality of a television broadcast from the 80s or 90s or even well before that. And, and the movie takes place in 1999, so maybe it'd be more accurate to say it gives it the quality of a TV broadcast from 1999, right? But it's really cool because I guess Mr. Rogers had a model city in his neighborhood on the set of the show to demonstrate things and transitions in the actual movie, zoom in on the model city to demonstrate characters traveling from one location to the next. It's very creative. And I, th- and I think Heller does her best to make the audience feel as though they're watching the old program, which I think is really unique, especially in 2019. When they're outside of the context of the show, it's filmed as usual with a re- regular quote-unquote cameras. But when you're watching the TV show, it's filmed as though you yourself are watching the TV show, which I think is really cool. Uh, it, Tom Hanks. You know, where do you start with Tom Hanks? In 2019, where Hanks is, I feel like, viewed as a, you know, incorruptible institution of Hollywood versus then just, just, quote unquote, an actor. It feels weird to say that this might be the best performance of his career. But I I think there you go, right? Through all the stages and facets of his career, of of Tom Hanks' career, he delivers a calm, very reserved look into the life of Fred Rogers. And it's, it's important. It's important to distinguish, too, that it's, it is just a look, nothing more, right? You, it, the movie is not from Mr. Rogers' perspective. It's deliberately done that way, I think, because it keeps the audience, you and me, from knowing too much about Fred Rogers himself. And I would say it's that slight detachment from Tom Hanks that adds a little bit of magic to his performance. It's almost like, you know, there's something a little bit inscrutable about him where the audience kind of has to take his acting at his own word, which is the really impressive, right? Because here's the thing, because Tom Hanks is an institution, you do take his acting at his word, right? So his casting is perfect in that way because Fred Rogers, even though I don't know a lot about him, in pop culture, he is the only, he's one of the few celebrities who is as wide, who's widely celebrated as being good in every way. And so who better to portray him than Tom Hanks? On the, on the flip side, if it ever comes out that Tom Hanks is involved in the whole Me Too thing or he's done something really bad, oh boy, that's going to be crushing for a lot of people and me included. Okay, man, I would really hope that doesn't happen. I would say that in this movie, every bit Tom Hanks is equal is Matthew Reese, who plays Lloyd Vogel, right? He plays the disaffected journalist. He seemed kind of lost adrift as he and his wife are navigating, raising their newborn son. Uh, you know, Vogel carries with him. He's very angry. He's very angry for some reason. You learn why soon. And it comes soon is his writing. He's a journalist for Esquire magazine. And he's sent to do to Pittsburgh to write a short kind of puff piece on Fred Rogers because nobody else wants to be interviewed by him because he just writes like hit pieces on them, right? And only after does Vogel meet Rogers does he begin to let go of his anger. And you later learn the puff piece turns into a feature article in real life. Uh, it was written by the inspiration for the Vogel character, who was, uh, I believe his name was Tom Junod. I could be mispronouncing his last name. Junod, Junod, J-U-N-O-D, Tom Junod. 
uh, again, for actually for Esquire magazine. So you can actually, if you Google it, you can read the real piece. And that feature article, I think, is the inspiration for this movie, right? It's kind of like the art, the author's life, but also that article. And if you read the movie, and then, if, you, if you watch the movie and then read the article, you can see which scenes are adapted quite directly, right? Matthew Reese, though, absolutely fantastic, P- portrays Vogel amazingly from beginning to end. Very quiet, kind of understated performance, but, I mean, considering he is in virtually every scene of this movie, more so than Tom Hanks and as Fred Rogers is, I mean, he's perfect, right? Like I said, if you should you read the article. I think if you, I think you should read the article maybe before you see the movie, because I think it would help. I read the article after I saw the movie, and it, and it, it kind of just informed me. Either way, it works, but, you know, in the end... There's there's one scene in particular in which uh, Vogel and, and Fred Rogers go to lunch together that stands out to me, and Hanks really conjures up some movie magic, seemingly just for you, you know, like just just for you, the viewer, the audience, the consumer. And it's hard in that moment not to reflect on what the film is asking, not just Vogel, but you, the audience. And I really love it. I love it so much. And Heller had one of the best films of 2018 with Can You Ever Forgive Me? You guys remember I really liked that movie from last year. And she's done it again with A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It deserves, all, it deserves all the praise it's been getting. Tom Hanks, almost like impossibly, has never been better. And Reese almost delivers us some catharsis of his own, right? Because it's all a lot of it is about feeling anger and for, anger, and then next feeling forgiveness. And which of us can truly claim to have never felt either of those things at some point in our lives, right? So keep an eye out for this one. Because in, in, a, in an age where feel-good movies are in short supply, I think Heller honestly truly has made one of the best feel-good movies ever. That's it for reviews from me today. Thanks so much for listening, as always. I know we didn't have been getting to a lot of movies. You know, I, there's, I, there's a lot of movies I have seen that I have not spoken about yet. I want to get to Ad Astra. I want to get to Jojo Rabbit, The Lighthouse, Hustlers. And then there's some other kind of blockbustery ones, Terminator, Dark Fate, Maleficent 2, Frozen 2. Lots of movies that I have seen or will see in the next couple of days, really. 21 Bridges, you know, lots of movies. So we'll get to all of those in the coming weeks. And of course, like I mentioned before, we will wrap things up with a podcast, a couple of podcasts about Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. But that'll do it from me on this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. And you know what? On this ninth anniversary of Kanye West's my beautiful dark twisted fantasy let's let kanye play us out so thank you again for listening to the showtime movie podcast we will talk again in another week have a great night i'm living in that 21st century doing something mean to it do it better than anybody you ever seen do it screams from the haters got a nice ring